Blog Talk Radio. Find my baby, I don't know. 
Welcome back to the show. It's the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network at WCOM, Chapel Hill, Carborough. Don't forget, if you miss any part of our broadcast, you can go to our website and listen to the entire broadcast at uh, the Bastion News Radio Show page right at the top. You click on it. It'll show all the interviews, like my next one. Um, and you can listen and hopefully be informed and enjoy, certainly from the guests, including a guest I have on now. Uh, from Cascade Publishing House. He's a publisher, award-winning author. And folks, you, at the end of this interview, you got to make sure we, we, I have to make sure you have his information. So he's got just articles that you could think of. I mean, it was seven of them I wanted to talk to, but I wanted to focus in on uh, baseball tonight uh, because he's definitely uh, very informed with HBCU base, baseball in general. But I mean, he talked about uh, a lot of social issues, racial issues. We'll get into all of that as the days go on. But Harold Mar- Michael Harvey, I appreciate your patience on the line, and I appreciate you coming on as always, sir. Oh, L.A., I appreciate you having me on, Give me an opportunity to uh, meet and greet new people, new friends. So um, thank you for the honor, sir. Absolutely. So, you know, we had a conversation, myself, uh, you, myself, and, uh, and, and, and Tony McLean about – of baseball, the love of the game. Um, I know Michael Coker talks about how HBCU baseball, or, or black baseball, if you will, goes back to the 1800s and, and you know, even further, you know, back in the other pro sports when you, you look at the greatness and the talent that have played this game. You look at the Lou Brocks and Andre Dawson's who have been, you know, um, HBCU products have gone on to have great careers and Hall of Famers and things. And now you have uh, these series, I call them, you know, um, uh, along with the Black House Nine, who I know you work with, and and um, mm-hmm. the other organization, uh, that are highlighting these kids. They're highlighting these kids. They're highlighting these institutions. How much, how significant is this in this era when everybody wants to shoot the three or score a touchdown for them to have like the black college world series, it's coming up um, in nine days from now and, and, and other uh, different, you know, highlights and showcases, I call them the games, but they showcase in the talent of the players in these mm-hmm. schools. How significant is it for this to ha- happen in this day and age? Well, it's very significant uh, for it for uh, there to be this resurgent interest in black college baseball. The first black college baseball game was played uh, over at the Atlanta University Center back in 18 game between uh, Clark College and Atlanta University. Uh, And in the 1990s, about 100 years after they played that inaugural black college baseball game, um, Atlanta University and Clark College uh, merged and, and became one university, Clark Atlanta University. But that was uh, the first black college baseball game. And, of course, the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference, the SEAC, came into being uh, when Tuskegee started playing baseball in 1892 uh, Morris Brown then came in a little bit later. South Carolina State came in, and then Alabama State came in. So they formed 
a an athletic conference to help schedule the baseball games between those two schools. And a year later, I believe in 1914, uh, they formally um, organized the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. So what is now a major D2 football conference started out as a baseball conference. That's how deep the roots run. Now, uh, why it's important for this resurgence now is somewhere in the 1990s, uh, this myth began that, well, maybe it wasn't a myth. Black kids, for for some reason, were not going into uh, baseball beyond age 12 or 13. And so the... um, I think what really took my notice uh, was in the mid-'90s, I saw where Howard University had a baseball team, but majority of the kids on that team were white ballplayers, and the coach said it was because he could not recruit uh, black ballplayers. There was just not enough interest among black kids to play baseball. And so what has happened in in the um, 25 years um since we saw that phenomenal begin um, at Howard, uh, is that when you look at the face of um, black college baseball, you primarily uh, have white faces in dugouts. So uh, black baseball, black college baseball teams are comprised mostly of white players and Latino players uh, and very few uh, black players. Uh, many of the coaches now at HBCUs or white coaches and of course, they recruit white players, and they also hire uh, white assistant coaches. So, um, not only are black African Americans losing scholarship uh, and and um, roster spots uh, in, at your traditional HBCUs, uh, also those coaches are beginning to to lose those spots. So, back in the uh, about 2010. Um, Jay Sokol, uh, you know, white kid out of um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, had an interest in uh, the SWAC when he was a kid growing up. He loved SWAC sports, the football, the basketball, and the baseball. He particularly had an interest in baseball. He had coached baseball on the uh, collegiate level at one point. And so he started researching um Black college baseball, and he started the Black College Nines. A couple of years after he started, he uh, noticed that I had played baseball at Tuskegee, and he knew of some of, the, of my teammates, and he reached out to me. And so that is how I get pulled into uh, Black College Nine, where I today write feature stories about uh, Black college uh, baseball. So for me, the to have this newfound interest in the game is very important because um, not only in Major League Baseball are we losing black American uh, baseball players, there's 6.8% of all uh, roster spots in Major League Baseball uh, are held by uh, black Americans. Um, I think there are about 12% Latinos and about 3.8% Asian. You know, so the Asian population has really been growing in Major League Baseball. And if the trend continues, that upward trend continues, and the downward spiral of the number of uh, black Americans in Major League Baseball continues, in about five years you'll have more Asian 
players of Major League Baseball than you'll have black American players. So that's why I think it's important to have this newfound interest uh, among a variety of people in college, uh, in black college baseball. It was just joining us to talk with Michael Harvey here on the Bastard News Radio Show and the Bastard News Radio Network and WCOM and Carver of Chapel Hill. You bring up a great point, Mr. Harvey. When you look at uh, the percentages of, of black ballplayers uh, making up the HBCU rosters, we're not even talking about PWIs, right? We're talking HBCUs. And then right. you, I, I posed a question to, to Michael Coker, and I pose it to you, and I know you said, well, you got to make up the rosters, but what do you say to people who feel like, you know, HBCU baseball is sort of a microcosm of HBCUs, period, where um, they're becoming more of a melting pot, and there's some concern out there that HBCU baseball teams, just like HBCUs, will lose their identity. Why are they there? Remember why they were created and so on and so forth. What do you say to those people? How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I, I'm an alumnus of a, a HBCU, I, and I've attended two HBCUs. I, I spent my freshman year at Fort Valley State College, where I played baseball, uh, for a year, my freshman year. They no longer play baseball at Fort Valley State. Uh, um, and then, of course, I played at Tuskegee. So um, I, I, I believed HBCU. I love all of them. I mean, uh, when uh, on the baseball field, of course, uh, I root for uh, Tuskegee. I root for anybody that Tuskegee is playing. I root against anybody that Tuskegee is playing. But I love all HBCUs because they they serve a significant um, uh, place, you know, in not only the African American uh, history and culture, but also in the, in the culture of this country. Um, because they were founded uh, in order to serve as an educational um, outlet for black Americans, particularly coming out of slavery. You know, our um, uh, great-great-grandparents understood one, they understood two things coming out of slavery. Number one, we've got to go find our kinfolk that's been sold off. And number two, we need to, we need schools to educate uh, our children into this new culture. And so uh, you sort of see the blending of this uh, of, of this um, uh, HBCUs into the uh, melting pot, uh, uh, you know, being uh, a graduate of, um, of, of Tuskegee. I hate to see um, the pride of the Swift Growing South go that way because uh, it it serves a significant purpose in the black community, and I hope that the larger society uh, will wake up one day and and not be biased and prejudiced against people of black skin. But that day hasn't come, and 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 so so we always need home to be able to come back to. And and so also let me sort of try to dispel a myth that's sort of wrapped up in the way you frame that question, and that is there's this myth that black kids are no longer playing baseball, but they are. Right. Um, I see them every summer 
you know, for instance, Atlanta is a hotbed of black baseball talent. You know, you have uh, the Atlanta Metro RBI team uh, is very strong. You have a lot of input from former professional baseball players who have settled in Atlanta, like Marvin Freeman, uh, Marquise Grissom, Antonio Grissom, Marquise brother who played minor league ball but didn't make it to the big dance. Um, uh, you've got Hank Aaron Jr., who's a, a uh, for the Atlanta Braves, who who is scouring uh, the HBCUs, uh, looking for this outstanding um, baseball talent. You know, and uh, and you've got this MVP tournament that is hosted by a group of gentlemen in the from in the Cab County here in in uh, the metropolitan Atlanta area. They've been doing that since uh, the turn of the century, uh, where they come together every every summer. Uh, except for last year because of, of COVID. And they bring teams in from California, from Detroit, uh, from Chicago, from uh, the Tidewater area in Virginia, um, you know, Texas. Uh, and and uh, I, I see those kids, and there's some very – there's some good talent. Now, five years ago, what I noticed about the kids playing baseball at the uh, collegiate level, they're very small players. Our bigger players were still opting for football and basketball. But in the last three years, I have seen the size of the players increase. So now you've got, uh, we have six foot three to six foot five, uh, uh, 225, 230 pound kids who are now playing baseball. And those are the, they have the physical uh, strength and stature to uh, really be impact players uh, in Major League Baseball. So uh, what I saw happening in the 1990s is no longer happening. Kids have, black kids have come back to baseball, and they have begun to come back uh, in terms of size-wise, kids that could make an impact at the the next level uh, are beginning to play this game. Uh, But the roster spots uh, at HBCUs, uh, are being taken away from them. They don't have that opportunity. And that's the other thing about this melting pot, okay? So these schools and these athletic programs were designed for kids who couldn't play at, at their D1 schools um, throughout the country, by and large. Um, and, and, you know, so when the integration, you're probably old enough to remember when uh, the Southern colleges and universities began to recruit black players, and you you would have one or two on the team, uh, you would have one or two on the team on those northern teams and the and, and the east and west coast teams that would come south sometime uh, and play, um, you know. But but I guess in the last thirty years, um, those collegiate rosters are um, filled up now with with black uh, football and basketball players. Uh, still, they don't recruit them to play baseball. There's something about baseball being a white man's game that, uh, like golf, that uh, blacks have not really been able to break that code and, and break into um, to that aspect of, uh, of, af- of professional athletics and, and also collegiate and high school athletics. I receive emails and calls from parents throughout the country uh, who live in places where they are not a large concentration of African-Americans. They tell me, Mr. Harvey, what can I do? 
my son is at this high school and, you know, they don't play black kids and my he's a shortstop and they put him in the outfield when they do play him. Um, those are things I experienced as an integrator. I integrated the junior high school in my hometown. And I, I know what they're telling me happens because it happened to me in the 1960s uh, in a white setting. And, and, uh, but to hear that that is still playing, taking place in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, I mean, it shouldn't be, but it still is. Um, you know, so I don't know that I want to see the melting pot. I, I want those, I want a, a black kid who has the, the interest in going to an HBCU uh, to play baseball, I like to see him be able to go to those schools and play and uh, perform. It almost sounds like, um, you know, what you're saying, Ms. Harvey, that, you know, we see a lot of these kids um, go to PWIs because they think um, they're going to get better exposure when it comes to football and basketball. And then now we've seen the Deion Sanders and other people trying to bring those kids back in the recruiting and all those type of things. And in baseball, it's the opposite. You have these white kids that are trying to, they may have, may not be good enough or they may not have be able to fill a roster spot at a Alabama. So they go to Tuskegee. Uh, to get an opportunity, and that does take the spot. And I don't see anything wrong with people pointing that out, um, you know, because that is, uh, again, knowing the identity and the reason why we weren't allowed, so we did our own. So I don't see any wrong with that. Let me ask you this. You can comment on that, but let me ask you this too. Um, how significant and how important is it to have that face that looks like us, either a coach or player, that are – doing really well, being successful, um, to to help in the recruiting of the kids that may be looking at a Texas A&M rather than a Texas Southern when it comes to, the, to baseball or something along those lines. I mean, you know, my sons, you know, they, you know, teams, they, they see, again, the touchdown and the three-pointer. And trying to get them into baseball, they just they're not gravitating to it. Maybe I didn't do a good job at, you know, selling the the product. But but how is the face and the talent have to shine for more kids? I know they're going that way, but more additional kids, let's say, to gravit gravitate to the sport. Uh, you know, the face of the coach uh, says a lot. Um, but but more important than the face. I think it well in any recruiting process, you know, when you come into a, a parent's home, basically what a coach is saying to that parent is, give me your son for the next four years, and uh, I'll take care of him. And 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 typically parents will will give a nod to that person who they feel is going to take care of their child for those four years. You know, whether that's a white face or a black face, it really doesn't matter. So. So, um, uh, but if you don't have the, the the black coaches and the recruiters being to go out and, and to to scout these kids, um, you know they, they'll never know that there's an opportunity for them to go over here. Uh, sort of like on this question about why do you have the the whites uh, who who will play in a uh, in a D1 school, D1 HBCU, or even in a uh, D2 HBCU. They know that if they play um, college baseball, that scouts 
you know, not as many at the D1 schools at the Alabama, at Arkansas, or Florida State, or Georgia Tech. Not as many are going to show up during your games, but there are opportunities for you to, to get scouted. Um, and so if you go to an HBCU, if you're a white kid and you play two years and you end up with a, even a free agent contract if you're not drafted, uh, you know, you, you've met that goal. You met, you have one step close to that dream of playing, playing Major League Baseball, you know. So they will, um, will forego the fact or overlook the fact that this is traditionally a black college in order to, to go and play baseball. Uh, and they're only on campus to play baseball. You know, that's not part of the of the culture, the social fabric of those schools, and the other kids probably even know they're on campus. And that whole world is between the dormitory and the place where they have their get their meals and the uh, baseball diamond for their workouts. Um, you know, so um, I, I'm just uh, uh, maybe it's because I was I was uh, educated at an HBCU, uh, and I can't. Maybe I, there's a bigger picture out there that I can't see, um, but I I just know that those schools uh, serve a particular purpose. You know, Tuskegee came about. We often hear that Booker T. Washington was the founder of Tuskegee. Well, that's a myth. That's not true. Tuskegee came about because in the election of 1880, there were two white Democratic state Senate, state legislators. One. Uh, who represented Macon County, Alabama, in the House of Representatives, in Alabama House, and one who represented uh, his district, senatorial district, covered Macon County, Alabama, uh, in the in the uh, Alabama Senate. And so, as you know, coming out of slavery, blacks voted Republican because that was the party of Lincoln. That was a, and the Republican Party pushed um, the abolition of slavery. Um, you know, so that so. Um, that's where the votes were going. And so these two legislators didn't want to be replaced. They saw the, the Republicans coming to steamroll Macon County, Alabama, where Tuskegee uh, University is located. So they went uh, to the a, a, a businessman who had a shop, a black guy who had a shop on the town square. He was a mulatto. He had grown up in his white master's house, and he learned Latin and French and geometry and and so forth when the the tutors came by to tutor his white sisters. And, of course, he had the reins to run around the plantation, and he would go over and see what the blacksmith was doing and, and what the guys who made the collars for the horses were and the mules were doing. He learned all those trades and such his own shop after slavery. So when they came to him to buy his vote, they said, well, what do you want in exchange for, um, for uh, your support? And he said, well, the children in Tuskegee need a school. And that's how we get the famous Tuskegee Institute that has educated, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the world since 1881. That's Mm -hmm. how it came about. Because uh, Lewis Adams understood that, that this next generation of kids, the second generation of kids since enslavement, needed a school to be educated to be able to deal uh, in, in this American society. And most of all of the schools during that period of time came into being for the same reason, 
black kids needed a school because, you know, it was against the law to, during slavery time to um, for for a black person to read. And even if you were caught teaching a black person to read, you know, that white person would be punished. You know, so, um, you know, so these schools serve a very special and unique um, place in American culture and history, and uh, we should never forget that, and and we should never tarnish um, though the the reason those schools came into existence. Although I know the world has changed, we're not in 1880. The world is a is changing, and it is ever changing, and we are at an inflection point. Right at this moment, depending upon what happens in Minneapolis, um, Minnesota, in the next few days. Um, you know, it, I, I, I was going to say, Mr. Harvey, just uh, <laughs> I to sit here and listen to you historically, and and in terms of how you you shape the narrative of, uh, in particular, you know, how the schools and and even your alma mater uh, came came about. Of course, uh, a, a pulse. Uh, Civil War, of course. Uh, what you're talking about, 1880. Um, it, it's it's funny you should mention that with uh, George Floyd, and then of course the other um, murder, right, of Deontay, uh, mm-hmm, right. and there in in Minneapolis, baseball jumped in the fray by taking the All Star Game, Major League Baseball, of course taking the All-Star game away from Atlanta. Uh, this is the year they wanted to celebrate, and, of course, we'll continue to, to celebrate, I think, the, the greatest hitter of all time, Hank Aaron, and I mean, mm-hmm. that, arguably. Um, and they said, you know what? And I said this with Tony and I and some other people were talking about, like, you know, um, some geeky guys or someone who's doing the math and doing the numbers and looking at it from a broader scale said, we need to be proactive for or against this thing. And they decided they're against it in terms of staying in Atlanta playing this all-star game and moving it based on the climate of the, the voter suppression, if you will, there Mm -hmm. with Stacey Abrams and everything that's going on in, in your state of Georgia. So, was 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 baseball right to do this um and how impactful it is i know i've had some people on said you know it's going to hurt minority businesses and all these different things which you can debate but uh, are they are, are they right in in putting their foot into this thing and I mean, we've seen this all the time, Juan, uh, John Carlos and the Olympics. and I mean, Ali, we can go on and on. Sports has always been a microcosm in being involved with social change. So w- what say you about what baseball did? They did the right thing. They did the right thing. Spoke out against it. What player on the Atlanta Braves uh, spoke out against Major League Baseball removing the game? But Marvin um, – Marvin, who's the first baseman? I can't, you know, his last name eludes me. He spoke out. Right, I knew. Mm-hmm. Guess what? How many black players, how many black Americans are on the Atlanta Braves baseball team? 
And by the way, the Braves put out a statement after baseball, too, I'm sure you were familiar with, that really was very lukewarm. And, and AKA, we, we didn't appreciate this. We don't like it. Right. Our fans didn't put that kind of thing out. Right. They have no black players. They have no African-American players on the Atlanta Braves baseball team. When I tell you that they are 6.8%, those are about 18, excuse me, 19 to 18 numbers. 6.8%. I don't know what it was in 1920 was, you know, a different year uh, because of, of, of COVID. But in, 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 19, in 2018 numbers, that was 6.8% black Americans in Major League Baseball. Atlanta has zero. They have about five uh, Latino players, and they are very good young players. I'm not taking anything away from the Latin players, you know, um, I have participated with the Atlanta RBI. We, we've taken uh, kids from Atlanta uh, and equipment from Unzuno to Puerto Rico in order to support uh, baseball in Puerto Rico. You know, so I, I'm not, I don't have any problem with, with Latino players coming here and playing the game and making money, but black American players ought to be in the league too. But basically baseball did the right thing. Now we talk about it's going to hurt minority-owned businesses and black businesses and blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, progress does hurt. When you stand up for what's right, it does hurt. I mean, in order to get the Voting Rights Act, John Lewis took a blow to the head. Hosea Williams took a, a blow to the head. Amelia Boynton took a blow to the head. Martin Luther King Jr. took a bullet to the head. That hurts. So there's always pain involved. There's always hurt involved when you get out to do what's right, to improve the condition. So we all have to be willing uh, to make the sacrifice. Those people made the, made the sacrifice in order to change that uh, segregated system that we have been under since uh, 1890, 1896. So it hurts. And, and, so and to, to your people, point, to your, I was going to say to your point, Mr. you can continue, that whenever the oppressor is um, exposed in a manner of this, um, we always told to stand down or let's work through the system. Or whatever, whatever. We always got to acquiesce in these type of situations. Baseball, no different. And as you said, it's it's no surprise, zero surprise, that the Braves would take this stance. It's shocking, though, that in a year of their greatest ball player passing on, that they would even come out like that. You know, you don't even have any yeah. black ball players. That to our our our, our cousins, uh, you know, our brown cousins. Uh, I get it, like you said, I, it's nothing against them. But if you don't have any black ball players and your greatest player was black that just passed on, why would you take a stand like that? It makes no sense. No, what's up? Uh, and it's important for 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 us when I say us for for black Georgians to have this right to vote. I mean, the, the the Republicans have been rough, running roughshod over this state and over the uh, freedoms 
of black Georgians for the last 21 years. They came into power in, in, two, in 2000, and, and uh, the state has not been the same since. You know, they, they will the way at everything, and, and they tax you. Um, every year they go into session, they're raising taxes, making it more difficult for the, for the average Georgian uh, to live comfortably. Uh, you, you know, and so last year and also in January of this year, you know, the, the black electorate looked at the system. You know, so Stacey says, here's the system. Here's a way that you can vote, um, and, and you don't even have to leave your home during the pandemic. And so taking the rules as they existed, you know, black people outvoted the conservatives in this state and elected two Democratic congressmen, something that had not been done um, in this century. You know, so so um, so uh, you know, I, I applaud Major League Baseball for taking the game away. I wish the game was here, particularly you know that could, that would I'm sure would have been a tremendous uh, tribute to Hank Aaron during the uh, All Star Game. Um, right. but it'll come back when Georgia, when Georgia comes back to its senses. You know, then we'll get these opportunities. You know, you've had, had uh, Will Smith and Apple, uh, who was doing a movie with Will Smith, uh, they pulled out. They announced last week that they would not make that movie here in Atlanta. You know, so that's the first one. Now, you know, Tyler Perry, you know, he's got to step up. He's got to step up. And, uh, and I'm getting, and I am... And I'm getting emails, Mr. Harvey, not to cut you off, the people are uh, saying, you know, well, tell that to, you know, the, the person that owns the business around the baseball field for the All-Star game. And listen, I, I'll just, for, for me, I, I, I get it. As, as a broadcaster trying to, you know, present this on my own, I get it. Um, but, I, but I also have said for years, on and off the air, Mr. Harvey, that at the end of the day, you got to look yourself in the mirror. You got to look yourself in the mirror, and yeah. if if you can't be we in this, this a, this is a game. You got the one team on one side, one team on the other. What side do you want? That's where we're at. You have to choose a side. Um, and you know, I've heard a lot of people too. Mr. Harvey said that baseball will be hit hard with this. The the backlash from the fans, those fans, they put fans in quotes, white fans, I'm sure they say, that are going to be, you know, this is Colin Kaepernick all over again, maybe to a lesser degree. But, but do you think they'll take a hit like that? And if so, you know, I mean, they're standing on, they might be doing it because it looks good and, you know, it's the climate, but at the end of the day, it's still the right thing to do. Well, you know, the baseball's clientele is a white clientele. You know, you have, going back to the numbers again, 6.8% of players are, are black American players. So so black Americans are not going to baseball. They're not going to the baseball park to watch Major League Baseball because they don't see people who represent them, who look like them, on those clubs. Uh, you know, where you have large uh, Latino communities in uh, in these urban centers throughout America, they are going to the ballpark because they are cheering on their countrymen who are out there playing it, and rightfully so. 
you know, so, uh, yes, baseball may take a hit. But I think one thing Major League Baseball and all professional sports learned uh, last year is that you, you don't really need to put fans in the stands in order to continue to make your money. All you really need is for television to continue continue to uh, broadcast, and so you make your money on the the television revenue, and that may be where the game is going anyway. Uh, if you notice, so a few years ago, the Atlanta Stadium they moved out of downtown Atlanta into uh, Cobb neighboring Cobb, Cobb County, just right just across the uh, city limits of Atlanta into Cobb County. Uh, and so the stadium that they left seated, I believe, 55,000 people. And the stadium they built in Cobb only seats 41. So so that's the trend. They're not building these uh, monstrous uh, stadiums any longer where they want to pack in 60,000 folks because they realize that you don't need 60,000 to make your money. You you know you've got your merchandising that can be sold online these days, and um, uh, and your television reven- revenue, so you don't have to pack a bunch of people in the stands. So yes, uh, some people will not go, but that's not going to hurt the overall business of baseball. And I'm pretty sure that the commissioner, um, you know, crunched the numbers because he he knows just like you and I know that black Americans are not on these teams. And so the fan base that that he is supporting, um, they're not on those teams anyway. So the right. people who come out to see the game are white Americans. So there is a potential that they will lose some money there. But I think Major League Baseball, as, as the NBA and, and the soccer leagues uh, have learned, is that um, – you know the money is the the money can really be made in the future uh, on your television revenue, and that you don't necessarily need to pack people into the stands in order to um, have a su- successful uh, business franchise. And you know I I don't care what people say about the people who have businesses around the stadium. We all are in this state together. So if the if the government is going to infringe upon my right to vote. And which which means that there are things that I, as a senior uh, Georgian, may not get because they will vote against what's in my best interest, and that people who uh, would probably look out for the things that I'm interested in can't get in power because they don't have the votes to get there. I'm sorry. We all are going to have to suck it up and suffer a little bit. And, and you know, you know, the thing is. It really don't last long if you if we stay united. We can overcome this. You know, the governor is going around saying, "Oh, it's going to hurt minority businesses." Does he really care about minority businesses? Just like exactly. whoever's writing the email, whoever's writing those emails, you're supporting what 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 the governor of the state of Georgia is running around telling folks because he wants you to he wants you to put pressure on Major League Baseball to bring that game back. And so that other businesses don't leave either. But, but you know, about 100 corporations here in the last week or so have met and discussed uh, this voting rights thing in Georgia, and they are, they are in lockstep. They are supporting the move of Major League Baseball. 
they are also uh, working to see what they can do um, in, in, in order to create a legislature and an executive branch in Georgia that will do away with this voter suppression. You know, so, yeah, yeah. people are going to hurt if we all just suck it up and stay unified. It'll, it will win. We will win. And so just think and, about all the money you're going to make when it comes when, when, when the when when the game comes back, it'll it'll come back here. So Georgia straightens up, Major League Baseball, because they took the game away. You know that one of the first places that they're going to bring that game uh, once the the, the state uh, changes this law, they're going to come right back to Georgia. They didn't want to take it away, you know. So right. so then just think about how much money those people are going to make over there. And although I won't be making any of it with them, I'm going to applaud it. And I'm going to say, you know, you all deserve it, and I'm just so happy for you. But right yeah, now, and then, you I, know, you know it, I, I'm going to pray for you right now because I, I think you just need to be be strong. Right, and it's a win-win-win for baseball. I mean, they 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 look on they on the right side of of righteousness, um, and they still will, you know, support Hank Aaron, like you said. Um, or um, honor him. They'll bring it back, and then where you know they move to another uh, city to play it. That city is excited. So I, I think pro sports in general, and the, the colleges, of course, they make a zillion dollars. They they got it right. It's not about not playing. It's about playing in the midst of COVID. They got a template now, like you said. It's that's all that is corporate sponsorship and everything. They don't need butts in the seats anymore. It's just about if you got mm-hmm. you the, the corporate. Listen, I'm a Yankee fan, and the Yankees, the, the daddy would spend out of the wazoo. The the kids are like, wait, we got the merchandising, we got MSG, we got this, that, and the other thing. We don't have to spend that much, and if we win, fine. If if we don't win, we still making money. So it's, I mean, the small markets do it all the time. I mean, it's a different subject, but I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's where you're you're right about how um, the sport in particular is going. Why pack it with sixty where we can get forty in, get our corporate sponsors? We ain't got to worry about attendance. We still gonna make our money anyway. That's all the lovable losers have done anyway. They ain't try to win. They just want to get all the money they can from the corporate sponsors in the box seats and things. So oh, yeah. um, it, I mean, it'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know you are. That's why I had to drop that in because, uh, you know, hopefully. <laughs> we're, in last, we're in last place right now. <laughs> I know, with, with a horrible Boston Red Sox team, but. But anyway, it's it's early. We'll <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens. One 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 final thing I have to, like I said to the audience. I mean, you write so much. You're an award-winning author. You write on so many different topics. Please do let people know how they can follow you and and read your articles. And I know we have some stuff uh, of some of your stuff already posted at our website. Uh, you. Um... You can follow me at haroldmichaelharvey.com. So everything I write eventually ends up over there. I do write for other um, uh, blogs or online publications, uh, but everything I write ends up at haroldmichaelharvey.com, including the books that I've written. I've written five books, and they're all over there. Um, 
there's a book on on Negro League baseball uh, entitled The Duke of 18th and Vine, Bob Kendrick Pitches Negro League Baseball, which is a good book. And, of course, um, I had a 27-year-old neighbor, um, C.T. Vivian, who was a Bell of Freedom winner and civil rights icon, you know, strategized with Dr. King. He worked primarily in the background. Uh, right. He and I were neighbors for 27 years. He passed last year, and so I wrote my yeah. reflections of my C.T. Vivian story. That you can find that book there too. It's a it's a very interesting read because uh, I we had the type of relationship where you know I could sit him down and just say you know what in the world was Martin Luther King thinking about when he did so and so? What was what did he really mean when he said so and so? And so I get the backstory and I write about uh, um, some of those backstories that. He shared with me that, uh, you know, that he didn't necessarily talk about, um, you know, publicly. Um, but I but I think um, those stories are so in, important now, especially since he is gone, that that information really needs to be transferred from generation to generation so that a younger generation can learn from, uh, you know, what was inside of the head of such a great man. Um, and 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 the other three books that that I've written are you could also see those there. So that's how you can get in touch with me. You can follow me at Twitter at H Michael Harvey, and um, I think at uh, LinkedIn at Harold Michael Harvey. I, I no longer use um, Facebook, so I'm not on Facebook. You won't see me there. But yeah, but go to my blog HaroldMichaelHarvey.com. I, whenever I write something, it always ends up there and. There's just a ton of stuff there, information. Um, I, I think last week I wrote about the three times that I have avoided um, being killed by the police. Right. I pray that I don't have a fourth um, fourth encounter with law enforcement. But and, and my story is nothing new or unique. I I think if the if you got ten uh, black men and ten uh, black women in a room, and you went around the room. Uh, at, at, at least eighteen of them will have a similar story or stories uh, to to share. Um, you know, so but but it makes for interesting uh, reading, and and it also gives some insight. Uh, if you see how I overcame those, how I was able to prevent the law enforcement person from using the gun. Um, you know, it just may be a lesson that you can share with your young people because, um, I mean, I, I've shared it with my son, and and uh, he has had an encounter. In fact, last I know you got to go, but um, but last July he decided he was going to take a trip across country. He lives in the Midwest, and he was going to go out to California to visit some friends, and so he got tested for COVID, and he was fine, and. He got in his car and he drove. Uh, he got. Um, he lives in Illinois. He lives in Chicago, and so right after he crossed over into Iowa, he had called, and my wife and I were having breakfast, and we we're sitting there talking to him as he is beginning his journey, this this cross uh, uh, country journey, and and after he crossed the line, he says, "Oh, there's a." Uh, State Patrol sitting on the roadway, and I said, "Well, are you driving the speed limit?" He says, "Yeah, I'm at the speed limit." He said, "In fact, I'm under the speed limit." I said, "Well, you just hold it there." I said, "Well, what's uh, what's near you? Or what's ahead of you?" 
He says, there's a big truck. I said, well, stay behind the truck. He says, okay, fine. So he, he's hanging behind the truck, and he goes on down the road, and about five minutes later, he says, oh, yep, the guy I pulled out. And I said, is he following you? He says, oh, it doesn't seem like it. And, of course, he finally gets behind him, pulls him over. He says that in Iowa, it is against the law to be in the um, lane of the expressway uh, and, and travel under the speed under limit. the speed limit, yeah, some states have yeah, that. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, he wasn't but, familiar with, but that he was. Rule, but, I'm sure he was being there. profiled, though. Hmm. Oh yeah, he was, and then the questions they asked, and we're just, you know, we're not talking, but we're just listening. And um, well, where are you going? Uh, going to, out to the west coast. Why are you going out there to visit some friends? Why are you going out there? Who, who are you going to stay with? Who am going to stay with? What does that got to do with a traffic stop? For, for traveling five minutes, five miles under the speed limit. You know, so they asked all these questions just fishing. Um, mm-hmm. Well, where do you work? Uh, what do you do over there? I'm a reporter. Well, I've never seen you. Well, that's probably because there's, a, there's very few sporting events this year. <laughs> it's COVID, man. But the, the thing is, they, they went through the drill trying to find something or trying to needle him in a position where they could observe uh, their their mastery over this black young man. And so it happens to all of us. But, you know, we've I shared those stories with him. I shared how I spoke to police officers and men in authority to prevent from being caught up in some of the situations that we read about and see on television. So that's a worthwhile read. It's free. Absolutely. And uh, you're not just a storyteller. You're telling, you're telling, you know, this from a historical standpoint. It's not just some, it's not, you know, fictional. It's it's real, real stuff. And um, listen, like I said, I can go on and on and with you. And um, we need to have these conversations more off air as well. But Mr. Harvey, I appreciate you, man. You be well, be safe. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for staying on as long as you have. And we'll be getting you on very, very soon. Thanks for having me. And you have a wonderful evening. You do the same. Thanks for sharing your audience.
Welcome back to the show. It is the Bassett News Radio Show on the Bassett News Radio Network and our sister station, WCOM in Chapel Hill and, of course, WCLM in Richmond, Virginia now. We thank those affiliates for carrying uh, this broadcast. want to go to the phone, bring in my guest. He is the Senior mm-hmm. Policy Program Manager at the Urban Institute. He is Zach Boren, and Mr. Boren, it's a pleasure for you to come on. And listen, I appreciate so much your patience on the line, sir. Hi, L.A. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I appreciate being on the show and uh, getting the, a chance to talk to you about, uh, about apprenticeships tonight. Absolutely. So uh, first question to you is, is what is uh, Apprenticeship 2000? Yeah, Apprenticeship 2000, uh, it is a model for developing youth apprenticeships um, in North Carolina. It's an employer consortium model. Um, It was created in 1995 by four employers. Uh, Ameritech Dye and Mold was an American company. Uh, Blum, an an Austrian company. Detweiler, a Swiss company. And Sarstedt, a German company. And what they did together is they transformed from being competitors in business to being collaborators to address talent shortages in the Charlotte area that they're really facing in manufacturing. Uh, for the employers, you know, it's a really great cost-effective model for, for recruiting young talent um, into their organizations to become mechatronics techs and uh, CNC operators and dye and mold um, operators as well. It's an enduring talent development strategy that they that they developed, and for the apprentices, it really offers this rigorous, high quality apprenticeship pathway that starts with uh, education in high school and culminates in receiving uh, a degree, an associate's degree, from a local community college um, in mechatronics and receiving your certificate. Um, showing that you are proficient as a mechatronics tech. It's just a really, really exciting model, an enduring one. It's a, as far as we're concerned, it's the, uh, the longest lasting youth apprenticeship model that we've found in the United States. So it's a win-win-win for all the partners involved, high schools, employers, colleges, uh, the apprentices, and really the state overall economically uh, benefits from having more people in good jobs. You know, it, one of the things in, in, in reading uh, on this and, and what you're, you're, you just expressed is the fact that, you know, and I think this is uh, through the Department of Labor, um, is that this country kind of gets away or got away from um, apprenticeships, uh, especially in a sense that it is a win-win. Now it seems like corporate America is more about um, – you know that uh, that bottom line, rather than doing it the way that we grew up, where you you learn the trade, you learn something a craft in high school, you you took on um, uh, a uh, apprenticeship at a, uh, a a local company, you work your way through up. By the time you graduated from college, you had a job. Now it seems like. Companies don't want to work together to do that. It seems like we've gotten away from that. And I think economically and, and the country as a whole in terms of how we, we uh, uh, look at labor and look at people who work, who have to do the work. Some people do the grunt work. Some people are, you know, the upper uh, management. 
we've gotten away from that, and I think that's really hurt the country. What's your thoughts? You know, I think uh, apprenticeship is really, you know, we've seen a big downside, especially in the, in the Great Recession for apprenticeships. They slid all the way down to only about 375,000 apprenticeships across the country. And now we're talking about a boom in apprenticeships. What we've seen is um, about a 200% gain um, since the Great Recession wow. in apprenticeships. Um, and we're seeing it all over the country. You know, and not only are we seeing apprenticeships grow in the traditional trades, um, but we're seeing them grow in places that we don't expect them anymore, or we don't expect them to be. So, you know, here at Urban Institute, we are uh, an apprenticeship intermediary. So we're helping companies, uh, you know, like some some big tech firms, like Google, uh, start some of their uh, first you know, apprenticeship programs that they previously didn't have um, to do software development, to to think about how do we train um, our IT specialists. So, you know, what what we're really looking at is that overall across the country, because of the investment that the government is now making in apprenticeship, uh, it's really a rebirth. And, And we're excited to be a part of it here at Urban we took a look at um, Apprenticeship 2000, which is an example of this apprenticeship consortia of, you know, four, uh, five, now six, seven, eight companies all coming together in the Charlotte area. That model is now expanded all over the state. So now we're looking at about 25 uh, youth apprenticeship consortia across the state. Companies working with other companies to bring young people into these really good jobs like mechatronics, but also in healthcare and IT and in manufacturing um, and a lot of the jobs that, you know, used to require a four-year degree. And what companies are saying to us now is we can't really find the talent that we're looking for uh, from some of the community colleges, from some of the four years. What we really need to do now is to grow our own. And I think this is a realization of, of really what's happened in the labor market. We have about 7 million open jobs. Um, even, even despite the pandemic, we have really skilled labor that needs to be filled and companies are, are stepping up to the plate with apprenticeship and figuring out how to uh, develop these programs, really develop young people um, into, their, 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 into their talent pipeline. Mm. If you're just joining us, we'll talk with Zach Boren. He's the Senior Policy Program Manager at the Urban Institute, talking about apprentice, apprenticeships here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Is, are some of the jobs, some of the apprenticeships um, with some of these companies sort of antiquated? Is it based on the, the, the state, the city, in terms of where you place these young people? I mean, I know manufacturing was, you know, big in Carolina. I don't know. I don't know the numbers if it's down or up, but you know, RTP is 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 grown uh, with tech jobs. You talk about Charlotte. So, is are some of these type of kind of outdated, and some of these companies need to redevelop themselves, or are you still finding um, places where you could place this young, this young great minds? Oh, really? I mean, I, I find apprenticeship to be more cutting edge and more industry-led than anything um, than, than what we see before. We have to see that, 
you know, if you're going to place someone into an apprenticeship, you really have to train them with 21st century skills in, in order to, to stay competitive. We see this, you know, really, you know, not just here in the United States, but with our competitors like Germany and Switzerland and the UK, they are all using apprenticeships to their advantage uh, with some of the biggest corporations um, to stay to stay competitive and to to really um, develop their their talent pipeline for jobs that are really hard to fill. So with Apprenticeship 2000, we're talking about this occupation called mechatronics. So it's really kind of thinking about electronics with mechanical engineering that we're combining into a four-year apprenticeship that really leads up, can lead up to an engineering degree. So we're talking about really, really cutting edge um, type, types of occupations where some of the machines they're working on are working on a split of a second to, to create a part. And those workers, these young workers, like we met Jordan um, at, at, uh, at um, Apprenticeship 2000, she is really thinking about how do I um, ensure that the machine I'm working on, this really high-tech machine, is going to turn out a product and a profit for her company called Blum. Um, and they're, you know, they're a multinational company, um, and they're located in the Charlotte area. And we find that across, you know, across North Carolina, we're seeing there are really fewer people working in, in manufacturing, but they're working in higher level, higher, um, higher skill jobs. And that's why we're really seeing companies turn to apprenticeship is because they need to develop their own because uh, these jobs have become really complicated and the talent that's coming out of the colleges um, is really not meeting the demand that, uh, that they need. So what is the um, apprenticeship uh, consortium how does that differ from other types of uh, apprenticeship programs? Yeah, it actually offers a lot of advantages. I mean, most, most folks really think about apprenticeships. They think, you know, possibly union, um, maybe in construction, like, uh, like welders, um, you know, we're going to have, uh, we're going to bring in uh, carpenters, electricians, HVAC techs, plumbers, you know, all these great occupations that, that people do generally in the trades, a lot of times with, with unions, maybe not so much in North Carolina since it's a low union-based state, but, you know, across the Northeast and across the Midwest, um, union apprenticeship is still really strong. Um, and, but we're, what we're seeing in North Carolina is something a little bit different where companies are coming together to figure out uh, the skill gap together, and it has a couple advantages. It's first, you know, for a small company, they may only need one or two apprentices, so it's, it's right. you know can be cost prohibitive to bring in um, you know an apprentice. Some apprenticeship programs are spending as much as um, you know uh, as much as a, a quarter of a million dollars on training an apprentice. Um, Siemens is a great example of this. Who's spending that amount? including their wages to really create, um, you know, this really high caliber worker. If you're a small company, you're not going to be able to necessarily be able to front all that cost. So there's really shared resources. They go out and they recruit together. So Apprenticeship 2000 said, we four, five, six small companies, we're going to go out and recruit the best talent from, 
from local high schools. So we're not just being Detweiler and Ameritech Dianmold. We're Apprenticeship 2000, and we're creating this really uh, high-caliber reputation for our apprenticeship program. And so they're really, you what this consortium model does is it offers them, you know, a collective identity and credibility with the schools. I was going to ask, Sue, what are some of the, the downfalls? Well, not downfalls, but uh, some of the, the, the problems some of the programs face or some of the apprentices actually face. My nephew, I'm from Connecticut, you know, he's an electrician. And he was really frustrated. He, I mean, you have to. You got to. You can't uh, wire somebody's house and it burns down. So you have to have those times. It took him three years to get through everything. So do you see any of that frustration? Some of the programs that may have some bumps in the road. Yeah, certainly there are some some challenges in getting you know an apprenticeship program off the road uh, or off the ground. You also um, see where you know not every apprentice you bring on is going to turn out to be you know your professional electrician, your professional software developer. You're going to lose some along the way, and that's that's some of the that cost benefit that that um, is a trade off with doing an apprenticeship program. But overall, we see apprentices doing really well. They're really loyal. Uh, 94% of uh, apprentices who uh, complete a a program are employed and often stay with their company. So there's this real return on investment. Um, We find in a study of South Carolina, uh, the University of South Carolina has found that the return on investment is really high for employers that that start an apprenticeship program. it's a dollar twenty-six for every dollar they invest. But along the way, you know, for for apprentices, you know, there is a challenge. You know, you're going to be starting at a little bit of a lower wage, um, but ultimately, you're going to reach that. You're going to reach middle-class wages much faster than you will, um, you know, going for a, a four-year degree. I mean, what we find is that apprentices are actually doing much better economically. They earn about $70,000 on average a year when they complete their apprenticeship program in comparison to their college counterparts who are only earning between fifty and 60000 a year. If you're just joining us, we talk with Zach Boren, a, a senior policy program manager at the Urban Institute here on the Bassett News Radio Show. Zach, I did get some questions, um, and one of which was going to be a question of mine. As a African-American uh, father, with two sons, one says he wants to be a, a, a web developer, but you know, kids change their minds. The other one's in high school, he really doesn't know. He's athletic, he likes history, so we don't know. But my question is, how much of a reach is the Urban Institute doing with this program and, and communities of colors, maybe historically black colleges? I know you mentioned South Carolina, there's South Carolina State there. How much of a reach goes out to those um, that, you know, in in these urban areas that um, might have some some young talent that uh, can help some companies? Yeah, um, absolutely right. We are really reaching out to uh, the black community, to to other communities of color. It's really important that we, um, you know, make sure that apprenticeship works for, for everyone. Um, you know, in particular, we're working with South Carolina State, for example, to, to start one of their first um, apprenticeship programs in tech. So 
I don't want to get ahead too far ahead of their announcement, but you know we're we're excited to work with some of the HBCUs to to really um, engage them in this model that can be so effective for people who who are really looking to get attached to work um, and attached to really good jobs, um, especially in the tech industry. You talk about web developers. We see this as a key place where where a young person, instead of having to go and spend 100 or 200K at, at a college to be able to, to get into that field, they can potentially go do apprenticeship um, and get directly in. So companies like IBM, you know, Microsoft, Google, um, some of the biggest tech firms, um, and even some, some small firms. You know, we were working, um, for example, with a small one-person Black-owned shop in, in Tampa, that, uh, to develop their first apprenticeship program, their first hire was going to be an apprentice. So we think it's it's a, a tremendously good opportunity for for a lot of people to get into a variety of different jobs. And there's about there's about over there's over a thousand occupations to choose from. This is so fascinating. I just got a few more questions. If you if you can hang that, I'd, I'd appreciate that. I know we ran yeah. a little late. Um, the uh, what about the criteria um, for the company to get involved with Apprentice, Apprenticeship 2000 with you guys? Um, and what what do the kids need to do uh, in high school? Or what are you looking for? Or, or do they reach out? How does it actually? How do they actually connect both the kids and the uh, companies? Yeah. So for for companies, it's really about taking a look and seeing what type of talent you have you know, um, in your in your current company and seeing really where it's hard to, to either keep talent um, to retain them into jobs or places where you really have a hard time recruiting um, from, from other places. I mean, I'll tell you, a lot of companies are telling me they can't poach talent anymore. They really need to, they really need to figure out how to create your own before, if you needed a welder, you could poach it from, you know, down the road. Uh, from from you know local you know another local uh, welding company that's not the case anymore. Um, the talent is really not there, and we need to figure out how to grow it. So, what a lot of companies do is they come to a place like Urban Institute. We help design um, an apprenticeship program for them, um, figuring out what what occupations they really want to design. So we do the on-the-job training. Um, design with them, and then we connect them with a, with an instruction provider. So that can be um, a local community college, for example, or even a high school. Um, so what we do is basically we design the program, and then we have it recognized by the North Carolina um, Department of Community Colleges that recognizes um, uh, apprenticeships across the state. So there's like 12,000 uh, people who are doing apprenticeships today in North Carolina. Um, and if you're a young person and you're interested uh, in finding out, you know, where, where can I find an apprenticeship, um, there's a great website. It's run by the U.S. Department of Labor. It's called apprenticeship.gov. And you can go to apprenticeship.gov. There's lots of resources. You can see what are the types of jobs that companies are really uh, hiring for today. And then you can actually uh, put in your zip code and find out if there's an apprenticeship near you. Uh, to be able to apply for one. Um, and that's one of the best ways to do it. Um, the other way is to call the, the, call the North Carolina Department of Community Colleges. 
and find out um, what apprenticeship programs they have all across the state. Get connected to one of those local employers. Wow, that that's that's awesome. Of course, uh, this is this is all a business and personal information for me, uh, and I, and that's why I certainly appreciate this. Two two quick questions. Talk about some of the success stories. I know you mentioned one person, but uh, you can elaborate on that if you will. And you mentioned the pandemic. I I can't imagine, but you guys have done it. Um, how you maintain your stability in this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that we have? You know, it's certainly been a challenge. Um, I'll start off talking about some of the success stories. One of the success stories is during the pandemic. Um, We met um, Chris Stone. Um, He was uh, a former apprentice we interviewed in the case study. Uh, You can find it on urban.org if you want to take a read of what Apprenticeship 2000 is and jump in a little bit deeper. But he started his apprenticeship program when he was 16, and uh, he had a 4.0 GPA. Felt like college just wasn't right for him. Since then, he's he's graduated. He's employed at Blum in the Charlotte area where he did his apprenticeship. Uh, really, looking back when when he talks to us about his apprenticeship, he feel like feels like he is really further ahead than his peer group. At 16, he was working with colleagues who were in their 40s and 50s. He said he learned so quickly to show them respect and really how to work with older people. And he learned also how to make great presentations and time management. And very importantly, he learned how to talk to customers. So along with some of those technical skills that he learned in becoming a mechatronics tech, Chris also learned that uh, some of those essential soft skills uh, he needed to be successful um, in in a professional setting. Uh, Chris was able to buy his first house Right out, of his, right out of his program, so we're talking about age 21 or 22, he had no college debt and already had four years of paid work under his belt. I'll tell you, I met another, uh, another guy at uh, Meritech Dye and Mold while I was down there in, in, in Mooresville a few years ago, and this young man was age 22, was buying his second house out of debt, no, no college debt whatsoever, and getting married at the same time. I mean, compare that to what a lot of young people are facing after they finish college. They might be on your, they might be on your couch. They might be on grandma's couch. <laughs> they, they may not even be employed. And so this is just such a difference economically on what, what people are able to do. We met a fourth year apprentice during the pandemic that was really able to support uh, his whole family. Uh, his whole family were, were in other industries. Um, they all lost their, their employment, um, and he kept his employment um, as an apprentice uh, with Apprenticeship 2000. Was he really able to support his family uh, through a period of time where they did not have enough money to put food on the table or cover rent? Um, what we find is that apprenticeship is really a more stable field than what most teenagers get into, like hospitality. Um, and other low-wage minimum jobs, but these are really higher-level wages and higher-level opportunities that come along with them. You know, the final question for you came from Kim um, in uh, Raleigh, actually, and she asked, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, Apprentice 2000 um, faced in the beginning and now? Um, And she also asked, uh, was it um, 
tough to get some of the bigger corporations. I know you mentioned Google and IBM to to kind of sign on and, and get on board with this to 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 forget about the profits, just come together as as companies and 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 do the right thing. Yeah, so apprenticeship 2000. I you know when we talked to we talked to all the managers who are currently leading that that effort. And really the tougher part was really about getting to a collective vision. Um, that was some of the challenge in getting other companies to, to come on. They're really running a, a high quality apprenticeship program. So this is a program that takes four years to get your, at the end of the day, your professional who completes it. So there's, there's some cost that goes along with this. There's, you know, kind of this long-term vision and if you're a company that really needs your talent tomorrow, um, you know, apprenticeship 2000, uh, an apprenticeship program isn't going to be able to deliver that in a matter of weeks. It's really thinking about a long-term vision. Where, where do we want to take our company in five years, in 10 years? It's really kind of changing that mindset that a lot of Americans are in, this kind of short-termism of, we need to make profit for next next week or next quarter, next year into we need a strategy for developing our company 10 years from now. And so I think that's really the challenge is kind of changing that mindset of American business to really think about a, a, a longer term trajectory for where they want to go. Great point. Um, before you go, let people know, I know it's urban.org, but uh, please do give out all the information. I thank you for coming on. This has been uh, worth the time, and certainly I, I'd love to have you back to talk some more about it. But if you can give out your information, that uh, we appreciate it. L.A., I would always be glad to come back and um, come visit. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can come to uh, urban.org or urban.org backslash YA uh, for youth apprenticeship. Um, that's our youth apprenticeship website, and you can come find all the su- success stories from our apprentices and from our companies there, and feel free to hit me up on Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle? I'm Zach underscore Boren. Zach, uh, listen, I appreciate the time. Like I said, this was information for um, our audience. Uh, there are a lot of parents out there and and you know what everything has been going on in the climate and worrying about this talent and this talent you know young minds still trying to figure things out this is definitely a great thing is very refreshing very informative and i think like you said in the beginning of this interview it's a win-win-win i mean everybody wins with this apprenticeship and, and i thank you so much I, I'll, I'll reschedule with you again and you be well. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ellen. Appreciate it. Hey, this is Craig Bachelor. This is Kevin Bachelor. Hey, you listening to the Bachelor Pad Show with my dad, Ellie Bachelor, on the Bachelor Pad Radio Network.
And welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, and of course, IBM TV is uh, broadcasting this bad boy. We appreciate them uh, for allowing this to happen. It's LA Bachelor. We thank you for joining us wherever you are. Uh, certainly, we appreciate you checking in. Uh, and uh, tell a friend to tell a friend about this broadcast. Thanks to Mark Lee uh, for producing this bad boy. Appreciate him as always. Uh, if we can, um, I want to hopefully get to my guest. He's a professor at Texas Southern University and a prominent voice on the business and leadership of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and a specialist on the sports culture uh, paradigm. Uh, he is Dr. Kenyatta. Cavill, and I hope we have uh, Doc uh, on the line. Of, I, I know he was um, in waiting, uh, Mark, um, so we could pull him up. Uh, want to speak with him briefly. This will be sort of a short version of uh, the Bastion News radio show, and hopefully. Uh, we can get him up. There he is. Uh, always good to have the doctor in the house. You know, looking good. Feeling good. I'm, I'm trying to do my part. You're looking good as well. It's good to uh, be on with you face to face. Usually, you know, I'm on and you get my voice. Now everybody gets to see what this looks like. I hope I didn't let him down. Hey, man, my ugly mug, you, you're doing good. So, Doc, I, I want to get into this. I know we're short on time, but both of us. Um, uh, you know, no there's a, uh, a report out, um, and it was called as an article on a racial reckoning. Um, this Knight Commission report addresses, uh, inequality challenges or inequity challenges for black athletes and HBCUs. And, uh, this report, uh, really deals with a NCAA engagement into self-examination and to ultimately things being done. It was a 26-page document uh, that 70% of black students who attend HBCUs come from low-income families, with many coming from secondary education systems where uh, they've been inadequately prepared for college. We see that. And that's not just in funding, but having the courses. You're a professor taking those courses, math courses specifically, to be ready for colleges so the A&Ts and Texas Southerners can look at our kids and go, okay, yeah, they have those those courses. But the funding, um, the state colleges, the fact that um, uh, the matching funds in terms of endowment uh, of funds and things of that nature is a four-part plan, which we don't have time to get in. We'll, we'll talk about this again that um, the Knight Commission talked about. But talk about this because a, a lot of what people don't understand is that, uh, A, you may have some and I'll just throw A&T might be in a better position financially to keep their doors open as some other or whether right. Tech, Texas Southern. So a lot of uh, what people don't understand is that the NCAA doesn't treat the HBCUs like the PWIs, predominantly white institutions, as level playing fields, just like if we're going for jobs, just like if we're going 
uh, into housing and things of that nature. There's not a level playing field. So I know you're familiar with the Knight Commission report, but what what say you in some of the uh, the issues there and some of maybe the solutions moving forward for HBCUs? Thank you for that question, and it is extremely important, especially at this time where we see so many people looking a little deeper, um, or at least we want to believe that they're looking deeper in terms of some of the systemic issues that we've seen for many, many years. Um, and this report, like you said, looked at black college athletes. Right. Uh, and to some degree, also colleges, because they specifically speak about historically black colleges and universities. And there's two lens that we need to see that as the individual in terms of black student athletes, men and women, or institutional. And oftentimes we don't look at that lens as much. You know, we celebrate uh, individuals having some level of success, but we really don't understand or take the time, which I'm glad that you're bringing up, of what does this mean from an institutional perspective. So quickly, there's two ways that most institutions get paid, um, right? One is from outside sources such as funding from state, to some degree federal, federal resources, even if there are public institutions that we're looking at more so than our private institutions. And then the second way is through students, the number of students and the funds that they pay. Well, the NCA doubles down on that, and they take a weird formula. Instead of distributing the funds equally, which is one component, or even more importantly, equitably, they decide to create a funding strategy, if you would, a formula that allows the programs that are doing the best and get the most funding. The other way I looked at it, they also get the most funding from the NCA, which creates the problem that we're talking about here, the lack of resources. So this is all about looking at equitable ways of how you can make sure institutions particularly black institutions, which we know historically haven't gotten their fair share. So we're not even talking about that component of it, is we know that that is an issue, but how do you distribute funds more fairly, such a way that you can have a positive effect on black college athletes as well as historically black colleges and universities, the individuals and the institutions. You know, uh, one of the things that the Knight Commission uh, talked about in believing that the NCAA should suspend the APR penalties. You know how the APR, and it seems like the penalties are uh, in worst case situations when it comes to our athletes and our HBCUs uh, for at least two years to reexamine the APR system uh, and to reformulate um, the ASP. The, the grants that go into it to ensure more uh, support for HBCUs, both both in, in grants and, and and those academic supports. Uh, uh, what do you uh, uh, think about that? And and it, it you know in the report and speaking with HBCU presidents, they said the time is now. Like to, to reach this threshold, it comes down to the funding or the or the, the lack thereof, the, the shortfalls that, that take place with HBCUs. Let me unwrap this a little bit for those that are looking at um, APR, which people are familiar with the academic progress rate, as they call it. Um, and they have a program associated with accelerated academic success programs, AASP. Right. Well, this program was 
specifically developed to make sure that HBCU programs got funding. Two issues with that is when you looked at the APR funding component of it, is it still goes down to resources. You had to apply for these funds, and you had to have resources in regards to people that could create grant programming and write them up so they could apply for these funds. So if you don't have the resources, you can't write the grants up to apply for the funds. So you had a lot of HBCUs that weren't necessarily getting funds. At first, they were going into it. Well, then you had other resource institutions that wanted to call themselves limited resources. They were saying they couldn't get the funds. They wanted to get some funds. So now they opened it up and had more of this nomenclature they used for limited resource institutions were not just HBCUs. Now they were some of the other institutions, such out of the Southland Conference, to give you specific conferences at the Division One level, along with the SWAC and the MEAC, Southwestern Athletic Conference, and the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference. But these other institutions had more resources to make sure that they could write the grants to get the funding. So the HBCU still fell short. So, yes, they can either eradicate the APR or take a break on it. But what I would say is come off the money. Give the right. resources. It's not that the institutions can't uh, meet the requirements, which is a sad state when you look at it, because there needs to be some level of resources in terms of folks making a minimum benchmark. So it's not like schools are against the benchmark. It's like we know what happens. The institutions that have the funding magically do what? They meet the benchmarks. The schools that do not have the funding, what happens? They don't meet the benchmark. So it's not so much about the benchmark itself, it's the funding associated with it. So we can really take this in any direction in terms of anything that you discuss on your show and many merits. What we find out is African American, specifically blacks and black institutions do not get the funding associated with what's necessary to be successful in this country and to some degree this world. And so until we change that framework, we're going to run into the same problem with people being able to say, see, they can't meet the bitch marks and they blame it on something with the individuals in the institutions versus realizing that it's a funding system that is in place that really not only gives the money, but actually strips the resources. And think about so, this too, Doctor. So um, even to a certain extent, like if, if you're a business owner, right? Um, and you're looking for the grants, but the resources to get the grants aren't there, then how do you get the grants if you don't have the resources? So essentially that's what you're saying. No doubt about it. It's the same thing when people are talking about these loans. And one of the questions is like, well, you need the computer. You need to be able to be able to download the loan, get all this stuff. And you say, well, yeah, some of these small businesses didn't have access to the computers. So how are they going to get the loan? So you had folks realizing that and they were finding ways to get to these small businesses to help them actually write the loans. It wasn't that they didn't want the loans. It wasn't that they couldn't uh, have the loans because they certainly uh, were in positions to be able to show that they needed the loans, but they couldn't literally write for the loans. Right. This is the same type of situation. So when you start to strip all these layers away, we've been in a system for so long that has stressed and really aggravated so many different platforms for African-American blacks that it really becomes a human rights issue in regards to 
you're stripping these resources away um, that makes it tremendously difficult not to compete, but even to be on a field where you can survive. So when you start looking at these things, it's, it is a modern miracle in regards to what the African-American and black population has been able to do to thrive in some areas and certainly survive in most of them. Right, and that's the, the biggest thing. I did get a, a comment here just to get your comment real quick. Sure. Uh, they said, there's no talk of our athletes going to our schools. Does the professor think this is a new trend? Yeah, I think it's a trend, and it's a trend going in the right, in the right direction. And, but let me strip this down, why this is important and why this trend is happening. As we become emerged with more information, in a lot of ways, social media platforms, uh, which is giving us the vehicle, what we're doing to go directly to our listeners that are seeking information, is stripped away that these larger corporations are able to do to control the media sources. So this content media framework is important. These young people are understanding that. They're starting to understand it's not so much the institution I go to, but it's the fact that when I go, I bring a brand with me mm. and there is money associated with the brand. So a lot of individuals are reframing this discussion and say, well, let me take my brand to institutions that cater to a market that is more similar to what I'm used to in regards to African-American uh, black people in terms of the black institutions. So it kind of goes back to that old saying when people would say circulate the dollar in your own community multiple times. It's that framework if you can adhere to the fact that we still have our community. Well, at this fact, we know we still have these institutions. So how do you support the institutions and create um, your ability to navigate the space about your brand? You know, and, and, you know, whole conversation, uh, Dr. Ville, as you know, of athletes being paid. We know the likeness, the, all the lawsuits with uh, uh, people from uh, Ed O'Bannon and, and all those that, that, that looked at that. That's a conversation we know uh, this modern day, I call it modern day slavery, where um, the NCAA is the plantation. And a lot of our athletes, not saying other Europeans and others athletes are doing getting the same thing, but our athletes are a lot of times getting the short end of the stick, especially when you look at this report and what you said in terms of the resources being there. How you want us to compete if we can't even get to the, the resources to compete? You know what I mean? We're not even that. Forget the finish line. I mean, the starting line. We can't get right. to the starting line. We don't know what the starting line looks like because we don't have the resources to look find out what the starting line looks like. So that's that's a a, a huge issue. Uh and and one I wanna continue. One final um thought I wanna get to you on a, a, a much smaller level, and that is um uh Ben Wallace going into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh as you know, big VU guy. Uh, it played there and was dominant. He was a, a four-time NBA All-Star, great defensive player, won a title with, with the Pistons. Uh, your thoughts on him going in uh, to the Basketball Hall of Fame and, and the impact, again, here is an HBCU kid and graduate um, making his way and, and making, putting a stamp on that school, that, that institution, and HBCUs in itself into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. 
First, let me shout out to Bob Dandridge that also got in from Norfolk State. That's right. Uh, Bob Dandridge. He played with Pete we Kirkland. He got in by the um, elders committee, which I think is important in terms of Nate. But more specifically, you talk about Ben Wallace and, you know, in terms of the modern era of what he was able to do. One thing I want to shout out is to this group, Robert Clayton, that does this sports analytics that I'm associated with, uh, associated with that I'm very excited about because we have two classes at Texas Southern University. Uh, but I bring him up to talk about that he had high school students in the urban area work on the data analytics that they used to help support the case for Ben Wallace in terms of looking at it more from an analytical perspective, not just the brand associated with where he may went to the school. So bringing the analytics levels that playing field, which goes back to what we're talking about with those resource deprivations. When you take out resources, how do you find a way to aggregate it in such a way uh, that you level the platform and when people strip it all away, they start to see the real talent equation about what Ben Wallace brought to the table for that Detroit Pistons team and what he did with defensive player of the year, his accolades of all-star appearances. So he was quintessential and measured up quite well and better in many cases than some of his peers that were able to get in. So credit to Ben Wallace, uh, Virginia Union University, uh, the CIAA, uh, Norfolk State when you talk about Bob Dandris, and what it does, it puts another bullseye on HBCUs that continue to show their prominence when they are provided with the opportunity, not even a level opportunity, just the opportunity to participate, we still uh, provide stellar stars and gems that literally change the world. So that's the last place I would look at it, is that this is another avenue to brand HBCUs and show uh, what we bring to the table in terms of educating this populace uh, from an educational standpoint as well as the entertainment. And I would say, too, Dr. Add to that, you can, uh, real quick, that um, it also brings up the fact that we have to tell our story. Our I don't know SI, that. Our SIDs, sports information directors, got to put it, not just the guys that are maybe going to the NFL or NBA, but the guys who excel to the pro level to continue to tell their stories, be proud of them, uh, and, and, and get into that mindset so we can tell the stories, not just for, like you said, the Bobby Dandridge, but certainly a Ben Wallace. No doubt. That's why we put together in your part of this organization, HBCU Pro Sports uh, organization, in terms of understanding the need to tell these stories and keep them in the forefront. A lot of people are looking for these stories. Um, it was amazing when you start looking at all the stories that were out there and how many HBCU fans we're looking for information to understand and learn more. A lot of them were talking about their memories of seeing these guys play uh, on, and at various levels in the tournaments and what they did in terms of Bobby Dangers winning uh, a CIAA championship in the tournament and how big that was at that time and other stars that are in the Hall of Fame. So you're right. It is extremely important for us to understand um, that we must tell our story. And, Doc, before you go, uh, I appreciate your time. Please, I know you have a, a platform out there, not just what you do at Texas Southern, but your own show. If you can uh, uh, talk about that real quick and, and, and talk about how people can uh, follow you and, and get in touch with you, sir. Appreciate that opportunity. First, you can follow me on the social media platforms at Dr. Kenyatta Cavill. That's D-R-K-E-N. 
Y-A-T-T-H-C-A-V-I-L. Again, it's D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-H-C-A-V-I-L. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, follow me to get all your latest information on the HBCU sports culture. I call it the Sporting HBC Diaspora, and we have a show every Tuesday and Thursday uh, from 6 o'clock Central Standard Time. Uh, you can check us out on Dr. Ville's Inside the HBCU Sports Lab. Go to YouTube, and you can get the recorded version. You check us live on Facebook, uh, BCSN Network. I uh, did get a, a question, uh, predictions on the NBA championship. He said that he loved watching Golden State and the Lakers play, uh, was rooting against LeBron, but it was a classic game. Any uh, predictions? Yeah, it was a classic game. I, I think it's going to be hard to pull against the Lakers and uh, LeBron James. I think they are extremely talented, and much as many people want to give him headache for whatever various reasons, he is truly a talent and seems to find a way to get it done. So I think you have to Showing a lot of ways. I think the Lakers are going to find a way to the top. Yeah, I mean, if they're healthy, I, I, it's hard yeah. to go against the defending <laughs> champions. Doc, I appreciate you, sir. God bless. Uh, be well. I'll talk with you very soon, sir. We'll get you back on, okay? Thanks for having me on. I look forward to it. Take care. Thanks, Doc. Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, always good to have him on, professor at Texas Southern. Of course, he's a prominent voice on business and and the uh, uh, the, the sports culture, uh, the paradigm of that, the, the microcosms as it relate to uh, sports and uh, society. Uh, so always good to have him on. Abbreviated edition, uh, Mark, of, of the Bastard News Radio show, any Final thoughts uh, as we run out of here. Yeah, it was an abbreviated edition. Appreciate you coming in and giving us that abbreviated edition. I know you got to go off and do things. Like I said, I was watching that game. It was a classic game, and I'm actually hoping that even though he's going against the Memphis Grizzlies, that Curry can come in as an eight seed because, like I said, he was still lighting them up, and it was actually a very close game. They only went down by three points and actually had a – a decent-sized lead uh, until the third quarter. They did not have the best third quarter in the world, and they even acknowledged that as well. And definitely, if you're going to go against uh, LeBron, you cannot let your guard down at all. So apparently, you know, they even acknowledged that the third quarter was not one of their better efforts in the sense of Golden State. But I'm definitely curious to see, now that we're down, I think tonight we'll get the uh, eighth seed for the East, and then uh, definitely – Tomorrow we'll get the eighth seed for the West. So it's going to be interesting. And I know that um, I did not see uh, yesterday who won, but I know that the Hurricanes won their first game. So hockey is going on, and we've got our team, the North Carolina team, involved in it. And they do have a uh, Stanley Cup, at least one, under their belt. So hopefully maybe we can get another one under the belt as well. And as I told you before, I know that Doc has been to the championship twice, and I did go to school with Doc Rivers, so maybe we'll get a Philly-LA series since I would love to see Doc at least get to another championship around, and he is the number one seed, even though they kind of limped into the playoffs with some losses that I didn't think they needed to have, including the one against Miami. But we'll see how that all goes and how the tournament goes because definitely there's some hot competition in the East as well. So they've got Brooklyn, they've got, of course, the uh, Knicks, and they've got um, the Milwaukee Bucks. And, you know, you can't even sleep on the heat and some of the teams that are in the bottom four of those top eight. So it's going to be some intense competition in basketball. And I'm curious to see how our team does in hockey. And I'm glad to see people competing in our local level. Because even here in Durham, you know, the Durham Bulls 
had a homestand recently, so we do have that going on. And I was talking to my friend Jatobi, who's uh, the voice of the on-the-field antics, and he thinks that the Bulls will win their division. Not necessarily saying they'll win the whole thing, but they will win their division from what he's seen. So hopefully that'll be the case because, you know, we even had last year minor league baseball off and all of that. So that's just some of my quick thoughts. So I'm glad that we're actually having sports happen right now and all of that. So definitely yeah. glad to see that. And by the way, my good friend from Pennsylvania, Tim Stone, was just coming in and saying hello to the both of us. So he was saying hello, and he's up there in the uh, Pennsylvania area, but not in Philadelphia. He's actually more in the rural area of Philadelphia. So he was seeing us having our conversation and wanted to say hello. Well, good. Uh, uh, big ups to him. Uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully he's a Steelers fan like myself. Um, but uh, he's on the right side of the, the, the state of Pennsylvania. But real, real quick, because um, I, I don't run, but, uh, you know, in the Bachelor household, you have two – my two sons, one was a Laker fan, one's a Golden State fan. So one was happy, one was not. But the Golden State fan, my oldest son, I told him, look, you beat Memphis, you're still in it. Of course, you get Utah in the next round at the top seed, but you're still in it. Anything can happen with Steph Curry. So, you know, but Lakers are healthy. They they are definitely the team to beat out West. And, and in the East, like you said, um, it's Philly or Brooklyn's to lose. I'm hoping it's our Sixers to get it done. And, you know, it'd be nice to see Doc Rivers play the Clippers in the finals so he can get a little payback as the Clippers, you know, let him go and all of that thing. But we'll see. It's going to be a great play also. We'll be talking about that later on this evening on the show, too. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I know you got him out to your meeting. By the way, uh, Tim did say hello, and he was letting you know that he's uh, three hours from Philly. So like I said, he is a Pennsylvania person and of there three hours, his wife is actually an educator up in that area as well. So you've got a, another fan because he does follow a lot of the things that I'm involved with. So now he's definitely joined your fan club as well. So I know you've got some folks in the audience like Tracy Goodwin Hill and Tony Collins and Rhonda White that have been watching as well. So we've got some fan clubs going for LA Bachelor. We might have to start at LA Bachelor fan club. Well, I don't know about that. Would would have the Bachelor News show uh, uh, followers and call it that. And uh, incidentally, if you can, the shameless plug. We're on tonight from six to eight, and people could tune in and um, at uh, six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. If you're on the if you're on our e blast, you know when. But we'll shoot shoot a, a uh, email out to you. And uh, Mark, I appreciate your time as always, my friend. And uh, we will do oh, this again on Thursday. I, I did have just one very quick question to take one quick answer. I just recently joined, and there's sports things on that conversation as well because you know for a long time they weren't in available to iPhone. They were, I mean, they were available to iPhone, but not to Android. So I am now a member of the Clubhouse family. I don't even know if Tim's a member of the Clubhouse family, but are you a member of the Clubhouse family? Because if not, we got to get you on Clubhouse so we can get some of those. Sports shows and sports people involved because they do have various clubs and all of that, and some of them are sports oriented. So I just recently joined the Clubhouse community, and you know that's that whole lovely phone app and service that even has celebrities on there because I've stumbled across some folks that are definitely known in their field and would have that celebrity status. Well, I have to take a look at that some more to see if I'm going to be in that clubhouse with you, the great Mark Lee. <laughs> but we'll see. I appreciate you, my friend.
No problem. So we're going to get on out of here, and we'll be back next week with some more commentary about definitely sports and definitely things revolving around politics, social justice, and a lot of the other great things that L.A. Bachelor talks about. So we're definitely looking forward to that and everything. And by the way, Tim was saying that he's recently joined Clubhouse as well. So he hasn't done much on it yet, but he is a member of that group. So we're here to get on out of here, but, you know, I've got another show that I've got to get ready to do at the 6 o'clock hour with my good friend Coco McMillan. So maybe Tim will check that out as well because that show revolves around gospel music and music in general. So I'm going to get on out of here. I know that L.A.'s already gotten out of here, so let's get ready to wrap this up, and we'll see you next week on this show where we talk about sports and other issues as well.